Good morning. I'm Corinne. Happy to be here with you today. Today's reading is from Mark chapter 2, verses 1, I'm sorry, verses, yeah, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word and just the messages that you have for us in them. Father, I just pray that you open our hearts to those messages today and let each of us walk away with what we need to hear. I pray that everyone who is seeking you is able to seek you in the way that the men in this story did. Um, just finding whatever opening and any means possible to get close to you. And Father, I pray that our hearts are all opened to your love so that when you say to each of us, get up and walk, we are able to do so in faith and to glorify you. We love you so much. We thank you for all of the things that you are doing for each of us each and every day. And it's in your son's precious name I pray. Amen. Hello. Can you all hear me all right? Good. Well, it's a pleasure to be here once again with you guys on Sunday. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. And for those of you tuning in maybe online for the first time, hi, I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is always a great privilege to, uh, to preach. And it's also terrifying, of course, as it should be for anybody who is going to stand up and be delivering the word of God to people. Um, but so the last, for the last year, we've kind of been hanging out underground and I have seen a lot of names on like email lists and we as elders go through, uh, every so often we go through that list and pray for each person individually, but I do not have faces to match to those names and I don't have histories and stories to match to those names. Basically, what I'm saying is, I don't know a lot of you, <laughs> and I would like to, and I would like to pursue you and, and get to know you, um, but I can only do so much. So if you're interested in getting to know one of your pastors here, there's one right here who would be interested in getting to know you, so please feel free to come up and introduce yourself to me. I promise you, I won't bite, but I do have a one-year-old who might, but I will try and keep her at bay. But um, enough about that. That's just sort of like a, an aside. Okay, so, a long time ago, a couple thousand years ago, there was a guy named Socrates, 
And he is supposed to have said this saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. And by that, he essentially means that going through life assuming that everything you believe is already true is not that good of a life. It's much better to have a life in which you actually ask questions, where you assume, I could be wrong about some of the things that I believe, and I want to try and find answers to the deepest questions of life. And over time, his students uh, started taking him up on this, and they formulated four essential questions that philosophers and people who, who are really deep thinkers, I guess you would say, <laughs> trying to answer. And actually, every single culture and every single human being answers these questions. That means all of you are answering these questions, whether or not you're asking them and like trying to figure out whether it's true or not, you're answering these questions. And these are the four questions. The first one has to do with origin. Where did I come from? Where did we come from? Where did all of this come from? The second one has to do with destiny. Where am I going? Where is all this going? Where is the universe going? Where are you going? The third one has to do with purpose or meaning. Why am I here? What should I do with my life? What should we collectively do as humanity? And the last one has to do with morality. What do I make of right and wrong? I have these moral intuitions as to what is right and what is wrong, and other people have them too. And sometimes these intuitions overlap, they're similar, and sometimes they're different. So what do I do with right and wrong? It's a question of morality. Those are the four big questions. And actually, cultures come to identify themselves largely around agreement on answers to these questions. And then, of course, the, all the things that we define as culture, like the food you eat and, and the various other things we do, those are just practices that are kind of built around answers to these questions. And um, so the Bible has answers to these questions, too. I don't know if you realize that. The Bible doesn't formulate the questions themselves, but it provides answers to them. But the Bible actually does one better. The Bible does one better because it goes on to ask another question in addition to those four. And that question is, who is in charge here? Notice the philosophers didn't ask that. They assume I am in charge of figuring out the answers to all of these questions. I'm in charge. Or the political structures, the people who have power, they're in charge. Or, you name it, someone is in charge. The Bible has an answer to that question. And that has, goes all the way back to the garden. It's been a battle among us human beings as to who is going to be in charge. And of course, you know uh, that Mark's answer to that is Jesus, right? He's used this word authority over and over again, and if you watched the last time, uh, last time I was speaking, it was on a video, but I talked quite a bit about this because Mark makes a big deal about this. This is another time where Mark is going to use that word authority. And just by way of review, he has spoken of Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm and his ability to cast out demons. He's spoken of Jesus' authority in the physical realm in his ability to heal people to actually make diseases die in someone's body, to restore their body to life. And now, he's going to use this word authority to demonstrate Jesus' authority, his power, his being in charge of the moral realm. 
That's essentially what Mark is doing. So uh, let's get into it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it again by way of review, just the first four verses. That's why it's in yellow right there. Um, and he, meaning Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, or when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Okay, taking four verses at one shot because this, I wanted to get us into sort of the shock of, of what's happening. Many of us have probably heard this story a lot, so you, uh, so you just kind of know where all this is going before you start. But I wanted to just stop and like have a sit here for a minute. Okay, so this story takes place after Jesus, so Jesus was in Capernaum, now he's back in Capernaum. So what happened the first time? The first time Jesus is in Capernaum, a guy comes into, the, comes into the synagogue. He's possessed by a demon. Jesus, I know who you are. Jesus casts the demon out. And everyone goes, whoa, he has the authority to teach and to cast out demons. And then Jesus spends all night healing people because they just keep coming to him needing to be healed. And then in the morning, he's trying to get away, he's trying to get away from people and they just, keep, they just keep following him. So finally, Jesus says, uh, it's too hot. It's too hot. The situation is too hot here. We need to go into the next town. And he says, because my mission is to preach. So probably Jesus is saying, I've said what I've had to say to people. There are other towns who need to hear what I have to say. So let's go to those ones. So they head out to other villages. But what has happened is that the people who were healed or heard about the people who were healed have already gone to those villages before Jesus gets there. So he shows up. He's walking into a village and he can already see the crowd waiting for him. And of course, he being Jesus, is, he heals them. He doesn't go, oh, we've got to get out of here. Let's get, it. Let's get out of here. No, he comes in and he heals them. So that, that ends with the last story last week with him healing a leper and telling that leper, hey, go show yourself to the priest, but don't tell anyone else. Probably Jesus knows that the guy is not going to listen to him. So this says it's a few days later. It ended with Jesus going out into the wilderness because he couldn't, he couldn't even show up in a town anymore. So Jesus was out in the wilderness for a few days. Maybe he needed some R&R. Maybe he needed a break. I don't know. But either way, now he's back. Maybe he, slipped, maybe he tried to slip in under the cover of dark or something like that. But he's back in Capernaum, the town where people saw him do a bunch of miracles. So you can imagine. Like, let's, let's put ourselves there. You get up one morning. Your friend comes in. Your friend comes and gets you up. Hey, hey, did you hear the rabbi's back? What rabbi? Oh, the rabbi who healed people. That rabbi, he's back. Come on, he's teaching in his house. Let's go. So, you know, you get up and you go follow him to, to wherever Jesus' house is. And of course, this is what you do because there's, I mean, come on, there's no Netflix, there's no smartphones, there's no sports teams or games. I mean, you can, most people couldn't even read. You can't even read as a form of diversion. So this is, this is the only thing happening in your life that's outside of the normal mundane drudgery of what you do every single day. So of course you're going to go. But now put yourself in the, in the paralytic's position. You hear Jesus is back, right? Hey, you hear the rabbi's back. Oh, which rabbi? The one who healed everyone. Oh my God, he's here? We missed him last time. He took off. We gotta go right now. Get someone. Pick me up. Take me there. I gotta get to him. Because you're a paralytic. You can't walk. You can't catch up with Jesus if he leaves again. You're not gonna catch up to him. 
right? There's no, there's no way you're going to catch up to him. And you don't know when he's going to leave, too. It's not like he, he gives the Irish goodbye every time he leaves, right? He doesn't make an announcement and throw a party and say, I'm, I'm leaving. He just slips away. So you can imagine these guys. He gets his friends. They're all, you know, pick him up. <laughs> down the block, down the block, another block. And the crowds are getting thicker and thicker. And they're probably thinking, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Are we going to actually make it? And probably they round a corner and they see in front of Jesus' house. It's just a, a thick mob of, of people. And as individuals, you know, they might be able to weave in, you know, like at a rock concert, you can kind of like get in front of people or whatever. But, but you've got four men carrying a stretcher, you know, it's, gonna, it's like the size of that chalkboard probably all of them are going to take up. You're not going to weave in and out of a crowd doing that. So you can imagine these, these poor guys uh, thinking, man, did we miss it? Are we going to miss it? And probably one of them says, well, um, we might be able to get on the roof. And who knows, who knows if, like, we can just practice some imagination here. Who knows if they, uh, if they originally had the plan of like, hey, let's go on the roof and let's cut a hole and put him down right in front of Jesus. Maybe that was the plan originally, or maybe they were just like, well, this is the only way to get him close to Jesus. But either way, there's usually stairs on the outside of houses there, not inside, so they could get up on the roof. And um, somehow they have the idea at some point, they're like, what if, we, what if we broke in? What if we, I mean, it's just a little vandalism, right? <laughs> but what if we broke in? What if we came, what if we let them in through the roof? I don't know, kind of crazy. Let's do it. So they start hacking away at the roof, which is probably some form of like clay and like cement-ish roof. So it, it takes some like physical strength, probably some tools. And it's not like the crowd outside is going to just ignore, act like it's not happening, right? So probably someone's saying, hey, what are you doing up there? Stop breaking Jesus' roof. Come on, give him a break. Either way, these, these guys are impertinent. They're like, no way. We are not taking no for an answer. We are getting into Jesus. I don't care what it takes. They want this. They really want this. This is a man's only shot. So they're hacking away at the roof. And uh, you can imagine, I just like to think of this. Okay, so Jesus is inside. He's teaching people. So he's probably talking. Probably not the way I am, just standing here talking. There's probably a little bit of back and forth. People asking questions. Jesus asking them questions and sort of working with them. But at some point, you know, he, he's got to hear like the boom, boom on the roof. And then like, you know, dust is falling. He's not going to just keep on talking as though nothing is happening. There's got to be got to be this moment, right, where he's like, okay, enough blows on the roof. I'm going to actually look. And so he looks up. And then everybody who's looking at him, they look at Jesus and they see him looking up and so they look up too. And everyone's kind of like, what's Jesus going to do? So just, there's this moment of tension as the hole gets bigger. And probably the only thing you can hear is the grunts of the guys, you know, letting, letting the guy down inch by inch. And he comes down and he sits right in front of Jesus. So what does Jesus do? How does he respond? Verse 5, which I think is the next slide. Yeah, there we go. When Jesus saw their faith, note, their faith. He didn't see just that man's faith. Faith is one of these things that is not entire, like there's an individual element for sure. But faith is a collective thing. Our faith grows 
and diminishes based on who we are around. It's contagious. You can catch it from other people. So if you're not around people who have strong faith, I encourage you to try and get yourself around them. Anyway, so he sees their faith. And he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you've read this story a million times, you go, yes, that's what Jesus says. But imagine this is the first time you heard this story. Imagine you'd never heard any stories about Jesus except for the ones in Mark. That's kind of what Mark is, is banking on. So Jesus would not have said that. You wouldn't assume that. You would think that Jesus said something like, oh, um, you want to be healed? Okay, here you go, you're healed. Um, what can I do for you? Something like that. But he probably wouldn't say, you know, your sins, your sins are forgiven. This is really, really good storytelling, actually. A good author knows how to get you to go, oh, what? What just happened? That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be going, uh, Hmm, that's odd. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And Mark is very good at this. You're supposed to stop and go, what is actually happening here? Slow down and see what's happening. Now, in, in their context, Jesus saying, son, your sins are forgiven, isn't, uh, it isn't entirely out of the ballpark, kind of like it is for us. And one of the reasons is because there was a connection for them between um, bad things happening to you and your sin. They hadn't pulled those two things apart. Think about Job, right? Job's friends all come to him and they say, listen, there's got to be some secret sin that you're holding in and that's the reason for this. Or um, in Jesus' day, in John chapter 9, he has two of his disciples come to him and say, hey, this blind man, is he blind because of his sin or is he blind because of his parents' sin? Right? It's, which one is it? It isn't just like, oh, there's this god-awful tragedy that happened. It's, it's somebody's fault. There's got to be a connection. So it wouldn't be totally unheard of um, for Jesus to say something like this, but it does seem rather odd. I mean, you can imagine that, <laughs> you can imagine the guy lowered down on the cot. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And he goes, thanks, Jesus. Uh, appreciate that. Now, um, if you don't mind, I kind of have a bit of a problem. In fact, you kind of have a bit of a problem now. You don't have a roof because I have this problem. Uh, so do you think maybe you could heal my legs so I could walk? At least then I could get out of your hair. I could go on. But it doesn't say that. Mark doesn't tell us anything about that, anything about the man's internal psychology or anything. But Mark has Jesus say this. Yes, for the man. Who knows? So like maybe, maybe the dude thought that, um, that he was paralyzed because of some sin. Maybe he was like, man, I shouldn't have took my little brother's truck and then got run over by a speeding chariot and broke it or something. I don't know. Um, maybe he had some sin and he thought, maybe I'm paralyzed because of this sin. We don't know. Mark's point in doing this is Jesus is saying it not just to this man. He's saying it to everyone there. He's, he's wanting people to question, wanting people to question him. And here's how it looks in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, right here, this story marks a transition for Mark. 
he, up until now, he's just given a bunch of stories about Jesus healing people and, and his Galilean ministry. Now he's introducing a new set of characters, the scribes. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers are all people who are sort of the guardians of Torah at that time. And this is the beginning of multiple conflicts that Jesus is going to have with these leaders. And these conflicts are going to escalate and escalate throughout the rest of the book. So this is the beginning of that. Jesus hasn't, he's not necessarily insulting them just yet, but, but he's challenging them. And by the way, just, just a, here's a tip, a Bible reading tip for you. Not part of the main deal. This is a free one though. Whenever you see people ask a question in the middle of a story like this, it's very likely that the author is telling you, you should be asking this question too. The author is saying, I'm about to have an answer for a question you should be asking. So we should be asking this, who can forgive sins but God? Why is he speaking like that? This is like a cheat sheet. This is your cheat sheet for reading the Gospels and for reading narratives. Okay, that's, that was just a sidebar. Now we're going to get back into the main deal. Okay, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who indeed? Jesus knows exactly how this is going to sound in their ears. He knows exactly how this is going to sound. They, right now, their categories are being challenged. Because in their mind, Jesus can't, Jesus can't be God. He must be making a mistake. Because if, he, if he's not making a mistake, then he's like intentionally blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. He, he can't actually be doing that. What Jesus is doing is he's doing exactly that, and he's trying to create a new category in their ways of thinking. They have a certain way of thinking, and he's trying to split that apart and create a new category. By the way, Jesus will do this to you if you listen to him, if you follow him. He's a category breaker. If you think that, um, that Jesus is joining your team, and he agrees with you rather than him calling you to join his team and you having to agree with him, you might need to rethink that. This is the whole authority and Lord thing once again. But that, once again, that's another aside. Okay, so how is Jesus challenging their categories? Um, well, I'll put it to you like a syllogism. I think I have this. Is this on the next slide? Uh, okay, next one. Sorry, I, I might have put this out of order. Okay. So a syllogism. You guys remember syllogisms? I don't know if you ever had a unit in logic, if you had philosophy or anything. A syllogism is a form of deductive reasoning. I know this is all Greek and boring. Hopefully it makes sense, though. A syllogism is formed of at least two premises. This is true and this is true. And if both of those are true and the logic is sound, then a conclusion will follow. So this is the first premise that everyone there is going to believe. Everyone believes only God can forgive sins. Okay, next one. Premise two. Jesus has just made a claim to forgive sins. Okay, what's the conclusion? If only God can forgive sins and Jesus forgives sins, maintaining the categories that they currently have, what's the conclusion? Next slide. Jesus is a blasphemer. But there's also another conclusion that could be drawn from this, right? 
Either Jesus is God or he's a blasphemer. In both of these syllogisms, the logic is sound and the premises are true. So it could be either one. Now, why are they not going to take this premise? They're going to prefer the first one. Well, because of their way of thinking. They actually have a hidden premise in here, which I think is on the next slide. No? Okay, sorry, that was that one. Next slide. Okay, third premise. God cannot become human. That's the assumption that they have that Jesus is trying to challenge. If you don't think God can become human, you cannot have Jesus as God as a conclusion. You have to say Jesus is a blasphemer. Sean can probably attest that most Muslims will hold on to that third premise and they will not let it go. And that's, that's what keeps them from coming to Jesus. So Jesus is trying to create space in their minds to challenge that third premise. Uh, and I think the next slide has, has, yeah, God can become human. That's what he's trying to get them to do. God can become human. If God can become human, and all those three premises are true, then the conclusion is true. Jesus is God. So we'll go on and see what happens in the story. Sorry, I think this is out of order. You're going to have to back up to get to um, verses 8 through 12. Yeah, there we go. That's my fault, not the, not the guy up there, just so you know. <laughs> I'll take full blame of that one. Okay, and immediately, verse 8. Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Pick up your bed, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them also that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So what Jesus is doing here, do you see in the, in the first, uh, well, up to verse 12, first up through verse 11, he's actually doubling down. He's saying, you didn't mishear me. He's trying to get them to have that third premise. God can actually become human. He's doing it by doubling down on this. He's essentially saying, which is, which is easier to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Obviously, it's easier to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven because whether it happens or not, like you're, everyone's going to walk away and no one's going to know. No one's going to know, like, did it work? Can't really tell. But if you say to him, rise and walk, and he does, every, everyone's going to know whether he does or he doesn't, right? Everybody's going to know that. And this isn't what, some kind of like, uh, I have abdominal pain. Oh, the abdominal pain is gone. This is like somebody's legs literally don't work, and now they do. So this is, it's either legit or it isn't. There's, nobody's going to walk away with a question in their mind. So Jesus is totally doubling down. He's saying, if this guy does not stand up and walk right now, then you are right, I'm a blasphemer. But if he does get up and walk, then I'm the one who has the authority to forgive sins. And only God has the authority to forgive sins. We all agree about that. I.e., I am God. That's what, essentially what he is saying. This is a claim to be God. Do not, um, do not mistake this. Some, some people will say, 
The idea of Jesus being God is a later invention of Christians many generations later. That's not true. Mark is the earliest gospel, and even the most critical scholars agree that it was written in the first century within a generation of Jesus' time. Everyone agrees to that. And just because doesn't, Jesus doesn't use the word, I am God, doesn't mean he's not making the claim. Sorry, he's a little more sophisticated than that. We have trouble keeping up with him. I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep up with him. But this is how he's going to do it. Jesus likes to leave a little bit of room for people to doubt if they really want to. And if that's you, it's, that's okay. It takes time. Notice what Jesus does, right? So he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them in verse 12. So that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Um, the text didn't say, so they went, oh, Jesus must be God. They didn't do that. They were amazed. It doesn't say, and many believed in him. It doesn't say that. See, Jesus makes room. Sometimes you have to be amazed for a while. You just have to be wowed. Your categories don't change just in an instant just because of one thing sometimes. So Jesus is patient. He gives them room. If that's you, if you need to be wowed, keep coming back. We'll see a lot more of what Jesus does and we will be amazed like these people. But if you have it in you now to believe, even you guys watching, if you're ready to believe in Jesus, believe in him. Believe in him right now. Okay, so everyone is amazed. Nobody believed. And that's the end of the exposition. Now to the conclusion. So the original question I had, the Bible has, who's in charge here? Jesus is in charge. That's the answer. Jesus, who is God as a human, he has the authority to forgive sins. He's the only one with authority to forgive sins. And that is very good news for us, by the way. I'll give you a reason here. I think there's some slides. You're probably going to have to go through all that syllogism again to get to it um, for the conclusion. The first reason why it's very good news that Jesus has the ability to forgive sins is because we are all like the paralytic Yeah, I'm not seeing it. That's okay. Just keep it in your head. We're all like this paralytic. We are broken. And we can't fix ourselves. We're also like this paralytic in that we actually need to be forgiven. Our sins need to be forgiven. Remember a few weeks ago, very, very sad story. There's a guy... Um, there's a guy in Georgia who struggled with sexual sin and he took a gun and he killed a lot of people who worked at massage parlors because he struggled with this sin. He didn't accept Jesus' forgiveness. He hadn't accepted Jesus' forgiveness. He had to take matters into his own hands. And you might hear this around these days, people saying something like, you just got to forgive yourself. And if that's you, if you're in a place where someone has to say to you, you need to forgive yourself, 
That means you have a lot of guilt, and that is really sad, and I'm sorry. But the answer is not that you need to forgive yourself. Because if that were the case, then that means that you have the authority to forgive sins. Ultimately, it's not what you say about yourself or what you say to yourself that matters. It's what Jesus says to you and what Jesus says about you. That's what really matters. And that's not a popular message these days, but it's true. It doesn't have to be popular to be true. Around earth was very unpopular a long time ago. No, we need to accept Jesus' forgiveness. Here's another example. Have you ever heard of Jessica, I don't know how to say this name, is it Krug or Krug? I don't know. I don't see any hands being raised. But, um, so this is a lady who taught black history at George Washington University for several years. Until a few years ago, she stopped. And the reason why was because she had made up multiple stories about how she was African. First she was from North Africa, then she was from the Bronx, then she was from the Caribbean. She eventually came out and said, I've been making it all up, and I cancel myself, and everyone should cancel me too. Why would somebody do something like that? Why would somebody try to change their identity? I remember in high school, people would get, get, change their identity so that they could buy beer. You know, get the fake IDs, go get beer. This is something much deeper than that. Why would somebody do that? The answer is guilt. Someone knows they need forgiveness and they can't get it. Can't find forgiveness. So what they're going to do is they're going to take matters into their own hands. They're going to the, be the Lord of forgiveness and they're going to say, well, I've got to do as much as I can to advocate. To advocate for people who have been wrong throughout history. And by the way, it's not, it's not wrong to advocate for people who need advocacy. We actually should do that. But there's a difference between doing that because you have received the forgiveness of Jesus and you know that he's the Lord of forgiveness and his forgiveness is extending towards the people that you call the bad guys. There's a difference between that and saying, I am so ridden with guilt, I got to make up for it, so I got to go advocate, advocate, advocate and become a belligerent advocate. I'm not saying anybody in here is that. But this is what the world does. This is, this is what you have to do when there's no forgiveness out there. You either got to try and forgive yourself, if you can do that, or you got to go out there and beat down the bad, the bad guys and lift up the good guys. And when we do that, we create all kinds of messes while we do it. This is a big difference. You know the difference between the civil rights movement and you know, the last generation, the 60s or so, and now? That one was led by, largely by churchmen who knew about this forgiveness. Now it's not so much being led that way, and that's why you see so much belligerence and violence and so many things that are um, celebrated with a raised fist. People like Martin Luther King would actually have trainings, train people to take a punch to the face and not fight back. Because he knew. He had something else besides guilt motivating him. He knew the Lord of forgiveness. So I'm not saying any of this as a, as a judge on our society. I'm, I'm there too. Look, Jesus says that we should forgive. And that's right. Jesus isn't saying that if I say someone's sins are forgiven, then they're forgiven before God. Only Jesus can do that. We need to forgive because we need to let things 
go. We need to let go of our claim on somebody else because they've hurt us. And I know that even though I try and I strive and I say I've forgiven so-and-so for the ways that they've hurt me, I've forgiven, I've forgiven, and I've meant it, I've wanted it, I've desired it, but every time I'm angry, I'm never angry perfectly in proportion with what's happening. I'm always either more angry because I haven't actually forgiven as much as I really want to. I actually can't be in charge of forgiving. There's something deep down inside of me that hangs on, and I don't have willpower access to that, the willpower to make that thing do what I want it to. This is why we need a Lord of forgiveness, somebody besides ourselves that enables us to do that. I'm not quite done, too. (laughs) I got another reason why. It's good news. It's good news that Jesus is the Lord of forgiveness. And that is this. The end result of sin is death. At the end of the day, Jesus could have the authority to heal this man and make him walk. But he needs more than that. Do you know that every single person that Jesus healed died? Every single one of them. And no matter what he does for us in our life to make our life better and more comfortable and more easy, we're all going to die unless he comes back. And if he comes back, we better be in him too. (laughs) You're going to experience what the Bible calls the second death if you don't know him. Jesus could have demonstrated his deity in a multitude of ways, but he does it here by forgiving sins. And that's good news because only with the forgiveness of sins can we live forever with God. Death separates us from everything that we love. And Jesus needed to rectify that problem. When I was, uh, I used to be in what's called an end-of-life companion volunteer at Providence Medical Center. And that's basically, they assemble a team of people who, when, when there's a patient who they presume is about 48 hours away from death, and they have no family or friends to sit with them. They call the people on this team, and you work in rotating shifts to sit with them. And most of the time, they're narcotized. They're not, um, they're not conscious, and so all you can do is just, um, is just pray and wait and see. But this one time, I went, and there was a guy who was conscious, and he couldn't speak, which is normal when you're close to death. But he was all wild-eyed, and he was clearly uncomfortable, and he was trying to communicate to me that he needed help. And it took me a while, but eventually I figured out that um, he was uncomfortable because his catheter was uncomfortable, obviously. Um, So I called a a nurse or a doctor, whoever. I pushed the button. (laughs) And I told him, hey, I called the doctor. Someone's going to come. We're going to get you taken care of. And then an hour went by. And he was still groaning in pain and looking at me all crazy-eyed. Then another hour went by and he's still groaning in pain. And I realized the doctor's not going to come. They know this guy's going to die. They have other patients to attend to. They're not coming. So I pulled, I pulled my seat up closer to him and I, I told him, I said, I'm sorry, but the doctors aren't coming. And borrowing a miracle you're going to die soon. Are you scared? And he, of course, was, he was scared. He had a need bigger than his discomfort. And I prayed with him. 
And as I prayed, he started to relax. <clears throat> His breathing became more steady. And he slipped into unconsciousness and he died within the hour. We fret an awful lot about our discomfort in this life, but we got a much bigger problem. Thank Jesus that he's taking care of the problem of death. We need him to forgive our sins, to bring us to God, to give us eternal life. Because if this is all there is, then the people shouting and hooting and hollering to get everything they can out of this life, they're the ones who got it right. But they're wrong. Jesus is the one who got it right. Jesus is the one who got it right. And what's so awesome about Jesus is even though he's the one who has the authority to forgive sins, he could withhold it. He could have, you know, the guys could have been banging on his roof, let the man down. He could have said, are you crazy? Why don't you come back later? Are you insane? Why did you do this? You broke my house. He doesn't do any of that. He forgives the guy's sins. Jesus loves it when people get downright undignified in coming to him. He loves it when people are desperate for him. So if you are desperate for him, he's waiting for you. But even if you aren't, he's still waiting for you with open arms. He still looks at you. He looks at me. He looks at every single one of you. He looks at you watching online. And he says, your sins, they're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. What a great God we have. How wonderful is Jesus. He looks at us and says, your sins are forgiven. He looks through the need that we think we have and looks at the one we actually have and says, that's the one I'm going to take care of. You don't know it yet. You don't know that that's what you really need, but I do and I'm going to take care of it. He loves us that much. So if you're hearing this, and um, maybe this is the first time you're hearing this, maybe you say, I'm unworthy, I, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. I've done too many bad things. You're not the Lord of forgiveness. Jesus is, and he says your sins are forgiven. So come to Jesus. Come to him right now. And maybe if you're, maybe you're sitting here and saying, Josh, you're really excited, and I'm not. <laughs> you know, I've heard this a million times, Okay. It's nice that you're all excited, and I know, I've been thinking about this all week, and, and you, maybe this is the first time this week you're thinking about it. But still come to Jesus. Say, Lord, my heart isn't excited, but I know that it should be. I know that I should be excited about this. I know that I should be thrilled that this is how good you are. And come to him right now. That's what he wants. That's what he always wants is for us to come to him. God exists as relationship, for relationship. He exists for love. And that's all he's really asking of us. He's asking for us our love. He's giving us his own in return.